Gosh Pods, paediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. Gosh Pods are brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome to our educational podcasts for paediatrics from Great Ormond Street Hospital. This is the first of our neurology podcast series, and today we have Dr. Cheryl Hemingway, who's a paediatric neurologist at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Dr. Hemingway, can you tell us what you specialize in? Welcome. Thank you very much. So I am a paediatric neurologist and I look after children with a number of different acute neurological problems. But in addition to that, I have a special interest in children who present with neuroinflammatory disorders of the brain and spine. And this covers a range of conditions, including demyelinating diseases such as multiple sclerosis. Great. So what is it that we're going to talk about today? So today I thought we would concentrate on multiple sclerosis and the way it presents in childhood and in young adolescents. Great, that sounds really helpful. So do children actually get MS? Because I always thought it was an adult disease. So it's far more common in adults than it is in children, but it is really important that we recognise that it can exist in children. It's estimated to be about 5% of adults, of which there are currently over 100,000 in the UK with MS, about 5% of those had their first onset or first episode in childhood. So it is much more common than we previously thought it was. So how might it present in a child? So there are a range of different ways of it presenting. Because the MS can occur with a demyelinating event in any part of the brain or spine, that the child can then present with an episode such as optic neuritis, can present with a brainstem syndrome, can present with sensory changes such as tingling in the face or in the legs or arms, or may present just with a facial palsy or other motor problems. Okay, great. So if we might explore those a little bit more. So can you tell us a bit more about what the optic neuritis would entail? So this generally occurs in a well child who over a couple of days notices a change in their vision. There's often some headache associated around the sort of above the brow area and pain on eye movement. They'll then notice that their vision appears blurred. There's some decrease in color vision, particularly of red colors do not seem to be as bright. And over the next sort of 24 to 36 hours, they can progressively become blind in either the left or the right eye or occasionally in both eyes. And how might the brainstem syndromes present? So the brainstem syndromes involves uh, parts of the brain such as the cerebellum, the pons and the medulla. And the common presentations we see there is maybe a younger child walking with ataxia and having some dysmetria and dystidocokinesis, so they're not able to control their arms in the same way that they were before. Sometimes they can be sleepy. The other ways that you sometimes see it in the older child is with a sixth nerve palsy. They complain of diplopia in that the either the left or the eye, right eye can't fully abduct and therefore they get double vision. Okay. And in terms of the motor and sensory problems, what might we be looking for? So I think, again, this depends very much on which part of the brain is affected. If it's part of the um, white matter involved in the cerebral area, you may get a hemiparesis, either the left or the right. If you have a lesion in the spine, you can get more discrete changes, maybe with uh, um, upper sort of maybe your right arm. I've had young people present just not being able to write nicely. They have um, poor grip. They can't hold their pencil at work or at school. And they notice these changes. But it's, as I said, it's a whole host of different ways of presenting because it's never just 
one specific area, it's often a number of smaller areas. Okay, thank you. So that's a really helpful classification. So then moving on to diagnosis, what would be useful in helping to diagnose MS in children? What so do we the, need to think about? The hallmark of multiple sclerosis in young people as in adults is uh, being able to show that there's dissemination in space and dissemination in time. And what you mean by that is that when you look, for instance, at an MRI brain scan, you can see that there are demyelinating lesions which are occurring in different areas of the brain and the spine. In addition to that, we need dissemination in time. And that means over at least a period of 30 days, you will see that there are different lesions coming and going. So if a young person presented with an episode of optic neuritis in the February and then a facial nerve palsy in the May, that would be enough evidence of dissemination in space and dissemination in time because you've had different events in different places more than 30 days apart. What is also now allowed in the new McDonald 2017 criteria is to use oligoclonal bands, which is a marker of intrathecal synthesis of dissemination in time. The logic for that is that it takes some time to develop oligoclonal bands. So if on lumbar puncture testing, you can see that there are bands there, you know that actually they've had the presentation for more than 30 days. Okay, great. So just summarizing the, the diagnostic tests we might need to do. So imaging is helpful, an MRI scan and oligoclonal bands. Um, yeah, so I think it's uh-huh. absolutely, it's really important for us to be able to see white matter lesions ideally disseminated in space and time, and they have a very typical presentation. They occur in the periventricular area, they juxtacortical, sometimes subcortical, and they have a very discrete ovoid appearance, which makes it typical for multiple sclerosis. We mentioned oligoclonal bands and also small round lesions in the spine, again, are very typical for multiple sclerosis. Thank you. So then this moves me on to what might cause multiple sclerosis in children. So just as in adults, it is a multifactorial disease, which we don't really fully understand what actually is the underlying cause for multiple sclerosis. It's quite clear that there are some genetic links, but even if both your parents have multiple sclerosis, you still only have around 30% chance of developing multiple sclerosis. So you need possibly some genetic underlying Um, changes and we know there's some typical ones together with some environmental changes different viruses have been implicated such as EVV sunlight and vitamin D deficiency have been implicated and then there are a host of other things that we're looking into at the moment like obesity the microbiome to try and understand the underlying causes a little bit better okay so then is there anything that you would suggest to children or families who have MS in terms of prevention and things they can do to reduce the chances of getting MS? So there's been a lot of um, interest in vitamin D and keeping vitamin D levels as high as possible. We know that vitamin D levels, when they drop low, if you have MS, can increase your risk of relapses. So all our patients will be put onto vitamin D. There are no good prospective studies of trying to give vitamin D to prevent the onset of MS. But most of the patients that I see are on vitamin D and most of the parents who have MS will give their children vitamin D in the hope of preventing it but this isn't evidence-based as yet. Okay thank you and so then this moves me on to how we might treat multiple sclerosis. What, what, What are the mainstay treatments? 
So I think the most important thing for us is to make an accurate diagnosis because there are a number of mimics that can present with demyelination that are not actually due to relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Once you've confirmed the diagnosis, then one has to look at whether you're wanting to treat an acute event or whether you want to prevent those relapses coming. Treating an acute event really depends on how much that event is impacting on a child. The only treatment we currently have is steroid treatment, and this can be given either orally, in high dose, or intravenously. Now, the majority of teenagers don't enjoy the way steroids make them feel. They can get spotty, it makes them gain weight, it can prevent them sleeping, give them a headache. So the presenting symptoms have to be worse than what the steroids would make them feel. So if they're having just a little bit of tingling in their thumb, they may choose not to have steroid treatment. If, however, they're presenting with quite a significant brainstem syndrome or weakness in their right side, then they would choose to have three to five days of intravenous methylprednisolone given to them. So that's how we treat an acute attack. We would generally give them the steroids intravenously with a little bit of support for their gastric mucosa of some form of protective agent and um, hopefully we will see a good recovery over the next three to five days. What we do know is that from many of the adult studies with patients with MS, early aggressive treatment does not change the long-term outcome. So if somebody is going to make a full recovery, they will do it with or without the steroids. They will just do it quicker if we give them steroids. Okay, that's really helpful to know. And in terms of preventing relapses, um, what do we need to consider? What might we suggest? So over the last 10, 15 years, there's been an explosion in the number of medications available. Up until 15 years ago, there were maybe one or two injectable treatments, which had very moderate efficacy. We now have 14 treatments, which we can choose from, including stem cell transplants, and the landscape has changed significantly. It's a very exciting time for us to be involved in MS treatment, and we do know that the prevention of relapses prevents accumulation of long-term disability. In young people particularly, we see cognitive changes, and that is really important for us to get on top of the condition as quickly as we can to try and prevent these cognitive changes. It may be because the developing brain is more vulnerable with the white matter, but it's definitely, we see a much more impact on cognition than on the motor disorders, and that's very different from what we see in adults. So which treatment to choose is a very complicated question, and it's normally something that is a decision made between the clinician and the child and the parents, and is really based on how active their multiple sclerosis is, which is what the scan looks like, how many relapses they've had in a couple of years. It's also based on the child and the parent's attitude to risk because the more effective the treatment, generally the higher the risk, and also the way that the treatments are given. Some treatments are given by daily injections, some are given by monthly infusions, some are given as tablets. So it's a really a balance and a discussion between all those involved to try and find the right choice of medicine for the right patient. Thank you. And to um, 
I mean, it, it sounds very much like there needs to be a multidisciplinary approach to managing um, children with multiple sclerosis. So who else might be involved in the team? So you're absolutely right. Having a well-developed multidisciplinary team is essential. And at Great Ormond Street, we have a clinical nurse specialist who is extremely experienced in managing young people with MS. She is there available on email or on the phone if they are experiencing any symptoms or signs that could be a relapse and she's able to arrange for an urgent review if indicated. She's also able to meet with them prior to deciding on which treatment to go on to give them more advice and to talk them through the options in more detail and more gently and slowly. So she is a crucial member of the team. We also work very closely with the psychology team For any young person, going from being well to being unwell is a major shift and they may need to know what do they tell their peers, who do they tell, how do they cope with this. There are a number of emotional challenges that come with having a chronic disorder, particularly some of them may have long-term problems with their vision or their motor movements following on from a particularly significant relapse. And again, the psychology team will help them to manage these emotional challenges. Finally, but very importantly, we work with a neuropsychologist. I mentioned earlier that cognition is important and is often affected in multiple sclerosis. So we always get a baseline assessment of the strengths and weaknesses of that child so that we can monitor very closely if there are any changes over the years that we are managing the child. So it's important that we liaise with this with the school. We provide school um, information on um, how to support that child both in the academic environment and emotionally so that they can reach their full potential. So essentially addressing all the different factors that are likely to be influencing um, the quality of life for this child. So this brings me on to the next question in terms of what does it mean for the patient in the future? So as I mentioned earlier we have now a wealth of medications available to us and some of these medications are highly effective. So we are hoping that as we go forward we can have children with what we call no evidence of disease activity, NEDA, which will actually go on to give them a very good long-term prognosis. We know that the relapses generate neurodisability and previously we would expect that over sort of 30 years you would gradually need to be walking with two walking aids We are hoping that this will change with what we have to offer in 2019. Great. Thank you very much for that. That's been really useful. And finally, before we we close, are there any exam tips or common pitfalls that that you feel that we should be aware of when we're learning and looking after people with MS? So I think it's really important to recognize that MS exists in young people. If you are presented in a situation, on the exam situation, with a well-looking teenager who may have some neurological signs which are hard to put together into one area, then it would be worth considering MS. The signs that you may see in particular are optic atrophy in one eye or another eye. It also may be a situation where you find increased reflexes, again, on one side or an upgoing planter on one side, absent vibration sense. So if you get somebody who seems to have a range of unusual neurological presenting signs, which cannot easily be localized to one area, 
think about a condition such as multiple sclerosis as there could be a number of different areas affected. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Hemingway. Thank you for listening to GOSH Pods. If you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by GOSH Learning Academy, please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy or follow us on Twitter at GOSH Learn Academy.